Welcome, I'm Jordan, and this is The Analytic Christian, where we explore topics in Christian philosophy and theology. Today, we're going to finish up our series on moral arguments by speaking to Dr. Anne Jeffrey, a professor of philosophy at Baylor University. In 2019, she published a book called God and Morality. In the previous interview, we talked about the first half of that book, and in this interview, we're going to talk about the last half, which focuses on the role that God plays in our moral motivation. The driving question here will be, why be moral? All right, let's jump in. Just to get us started, what do you mean by moral motivation? Yeah, great question. Uh, this is a has become a philosopher's technical term, but most of us probably do think about moral motivation, though not under that description, all the time. Uh, and this is what Pritchard says. So Pritchard is a British philosopher from the 20th century, and he says, like, in the course of one's life, um, you know, you you've probably grown up following certain rules or thinking that you have certain obligations to others or, or reasons to act in certain ways and not act in other ways um, because it would be wrong or bad or selfish, something like that. And you come to, to question, why have I followed these rules? Or uh, why is it that I avoid all those actions that I've grown up thinking are bad? Or why is it not okay to be selfish? Why can't I just live a selfish life? And the question that we're facing there, according to Pritchard, is this question of moral motivation. That is like, what motivation do I have to actually be a morally good person, to do morally good things? Um, it would be a lot easier to just do what benefited me, what was selfish, right? Um, so the question in philosophy of moral motivation becomes, uh, you know, how does a moral theory help ordinary people when they face this Kind of crisis in the course of their life you know think about like university students right um who are who get to college and suddenly like their parents aren't watching what they're doing and maybe their teachers aren't um grading them and evaluating their behavior and they might sort of feel a freedom to like maybe not follow the rules that they've always felt well what could a philosophical ethical theory tell them about why they should continue to do the right thing or fulfill their obligations, so on. So that's the question of moral motivation, which I think we all kind of face at some point in life. All right, so my hope is that in the course of the interview, we'll go through maybe four different arguments that can be made uh, about this why be moral question. So I'd like to start with Pritchard's dilemma um, and I've made a slide, so let me share my screen here. Give me just a moment. Hmm. Why is it not working? It was fine. Let's see. Do you want me to go ahead and kind of go, th like, talk through it as you're pulling up the slide? Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Go for that. Cool. Okay. So, Pritchard... Um, in this, this paper uh, in which he's actually arguing that this whole setup I'm about to give is a kind of mistake in moral philosophy. But let's put that to the side for a minute. Uh, there we go. Pritchard uh, gives us this really nice little argument and it's something like this. 
Uh, when philosophers try to give a theoretical response to this question, why should I be moral, right? The college student who's like, why should I not just lie to my professors about why I didn't attend class? Um, when people are trying to give philosophical answers to this question, they tend to appeal either to the person's own good, like it's good for you to not lie to your professors about going to class and tell some story about why that's so, or they appeal to the goodness or the rightness of the action type itself. Um, so just saying like, but lying is just wrong or lying is just bad and everyone should know that. Um, and the problem with these two types of answers, he says that every philosophical theory's answer falls into one of those two buckets, essentially, A or B. Um, and he also says, look, if we're going to give someone a satisfying answer, like an ordinary person on the street, a satisfying answer to the question, why should I do the right thing? Why should I be a moral person? We've got to give them an answer that is both psychologically realistic for them, something that's gonna actually change their mind about whether they should go on being moral uh, if they're really having doubts or feeling skeptical about whether it's worth being a good person or doing the right thing. So it's gotta have this like psychological, realistic motivating force, but also what it tells them that they need to go on and do needs to be recognizable as moral or right, right? So if you had a theory that said to the university student, you ought to be moral because it's really good for you. Oh, and it turns out that here's the trick. Uh, morality just requires you to do what's in your own self-interest and nothing else. So yeah, you could lie to your professor because it actually uh, could be in your self-interest to lie to your professor and you should do what's in your self-interest then you've given them an answer to the question, why should they be moral? That's psychologically realistic for them where they're at, but it definitely doesn't preserve our ordinary conception of morality or the moral rules or something like that. So it's kind of answered the question, but kind of also changed the question. Uh, so it, it answers by saying, you should be moral, but morality is just nothing like what you thought it was growing up, right? And that's not really great. So a satisfying answer has to have both this element of psychological realism, and it's also got to preserve something that's recognizable as morality, uh, the thing that's being questioned in the first place. And Pritchard thinks that the answers that appeal to a person's own good, saying like, it's good for you to be moral, um, are going to be really psychologically compelling. Uh, but they collapse morality into some sort of prudence or self-interest. And self-interest sometimes diverges from what's morally right. Uh, so they're not going to do very well on this, this preservation of, of our ordinary conception of morality aspect. Uh, but other answers, answers that tell us something about the intrinsic goodness of the actions that are moral or the wrongness of the actions that are immoral, uh, they kind of preserve what we ordinarily think of as what's morally right, what's morally wrong, uh, but they lack a kind of uh, compellingness to them, to the person who's asking the question, right? They're, they're not going to give us an answer that would actually move someone 
who has a psychology where they're like really questioning whether they should be a good person or do the right thing. Um, and so he thinks, look, that means there's just no satisfying answer to the why be moral question. Answers are either going to fail on being psychologically realistic for the people that are asking the why be moral question, or they're going to fail on account of being realistic, but just changing the conception of morality on us, sort of treating what we ordinarily think of as morality for something like self-interest. And that's no good either. Uh, so that's the dilemma. All right. So those are the the two horns, the, the horn of it being psychologically realistic. You can pick that one uh, or uh, it's, it's a recognizable morality. Um, you can pick that horn, but um, the, the point is if you pick one, you're going to have to give up the other and you need both. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So you, in a, it, this paper hasn't come out yet, correct? No, it has not. Okay. So in a forthcoming paper, you try to answer this dilemma. But before you do that, I want you to lay out. Um, I, well, I guess you've already kind of spoken to each horn. Did you want to say something about the like the Neo Aristotelians answer? Yeah, I'll just say super briefly that uh, typically in moral philosophy, um, people have lumped in uh Aristotelian theories of ethics um, as under the, 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 the first horn problem. Uh, so saying like, yeah, Aristotelian ethics can say like, you should be a good person. You should do what's moral. You should be uh, honest and just and charitable and so on. And then when you ask, well, why should I become that sort of person? Uh, they'll say, for your own flourishing. That's your best chance at flourishing. And folks have objected to Aristotelian ethics precisely because they think it trades the ordinary conception of morality for something that sounds a little bit self-interested. Like you're just becoming a good person because it's good for you. It's your best bet at achieving well-being in this life. And Aristotelians have responses to this. Um, but if... Uh, if their responses don't really work, um, if there is at the end of this day, this, this strong connection between having good character traits essentially and flourishing, then we might still worry that it's sort of a self-interested answer. And the conception of morality that we get at the end of the day is just not quite the same as the conception that the person asking the question started with. Um, so I think that's that's one serious problem, uh, and usually ways that Aristotelians try to solve this problem. Uh, one in particular recent attempt at solving this problem uh, goes part way towards showing that Aristotelian ethics is not egoistic, like self-centered, um, but it can't go so far as showing us that morality has this sort of like universal content. It tends to be very contextually and culturally specific. And so you end up having to countenance the possibility that there are lots of different uh, moralities out there that might be conflicting and you can't really adjudicate between them which one is the right one. Uh, but as we think about morality today in a kind of global society, 
we think of moral obligations and norms as being kind of universal. Um, so that's a problem that remains for the Aristotelian account. All right. And the alternative is the Kantian constructivist. Yeah. So what horn of the dilemma did they face? So they are facing the second horn because essentially Pritchard accuses Kant of basically table thumping. You know, like, you ought to do the right thing because it's the right thing. <laughs> um, and for someone who's asking whether or not it's worth it for them to do the right thing, being told lying is wrong, that's just the nature of lying, is not really motivating. <laughs> right? So um, someone who's already wondering whether it's worth it for them uh, to lie or not, um, when they recognize that lying is wrong, given the way that they've been brought up, let's say, um, it's not going to really be moved by having it repeated to them that lying is wrong, uh, that there's something intrinsic to the act that makes it wrong. All right. Now you you have your own solution to this dilemma and you think that it does equally well as those, at, at least in one respect, and then better in another respect. So that makes it the the leader among these options. The leader. I do think it's the leader among the options. Um, and I don't know if I can really prove that, but I think I can at least say something like most of the options out there, the secular options, if they do well on one of the sort of criterion for being a satisfying answer, they probably trade off uh, on the other criterion and don't do as well. Uh, that's typically how they work. Um, so I think that if we introduce a certain picture of, of God and God's relationship to human beings um, and the way God's created the world, I think that we can actually get an answer that's both psychologically realistic and preserves what we would say is sort of a recognizable conception of morality, um, according to this more modern globalized conception. And you call this the divine friendship solution or, or the model, right? Yep. So unpack this model for us. Okay, cool. Um, well, I'll say first that I think when Kantian constructivists and Aristotelians start to get answers that look a little bit more satisfying in one way or another, they have typically appealed to something like close human relationships. Uh, so that's, that's nice because then you're not just appealing to a person's own well-being. So it's not like obviously egoistic, something like everyone cares about somebody. Um, and we all have a sort of interest in making our friendship succeed. Friendship is really important to human life, but we don't think that it's selfish to be interested in friendship. Right. Um, and so Kantians will say something about, um, you know, having a reason to be moral because doing what the moral law requires is sort of required for most things people in fact value, friendship being one of these. Uh, I think that the Kantian conception of morality and friendship can't actually pull this off because there are kind of like friendships among thieves, right? Um, where it seems like they can pull their friendship off without having like a deeper commitment to 
the dignity of all human persons or something. Um, and so the kind of friendship that some people value doesn't actually require them to value the things that morality tells us we should value. Um, so friendship is getting us a little bit outside of ourselves and it's pulling on most people um, psychologically, but not quite in the right ways. And I think Aristotelians can draw on friendship too, uh, friendship within communities, for instance. The problem then becomes, what if you have two warring communities that disagree about their values, right? Then you don't get to preserve, you might have reasons uh, to do what's moral, not just based on your own well-being, but the well-being of your community. Um, but what if your community is doing stuff that's really atrocious to another community? That seems immoral from this like modern global perspective, uh, but you're not gonna have a story to tell about that if you're an Aristotelian. So what I think is cool about the divine friendship theory, the, the divine friendship theory basically says like, we're made for relationship with God, all humans are. Um, and there's just like one community, the human community uh, that's meant to be in relationship with God. And so God cares about being friends with me, but God also cares about being friends with Jordan. God cares about being friends with you and so on. And so unlike in a normal human community where you might have a uh, motivating reason to do things that will sustain your friendships with those close around you, but not any reason to sustain friendships with strangers or outsiders, people in other communities. Um, when it comes to being friends with God, uh, you know, God's not going to be able to be that close to you if you're doing things that really hurt another one of his friends, <laughs> to put it simply. Um, God cares about all the communities. So if you want to sustain friendship with God, then you've got to do things that are good for like all human beings, because it turns out God is trying to be in a friendship with all human beings. Uh, so the content of what's morally required is going to look a lot like our ordinary conception. Uh, it's going to require us to treat all human beings as having equal dignity, right? Like what the Kantian wants to say, essentially. Um, but whereas the Kantian can't give us a story about how why all people are motivated to pursue uh, the sorts of relationships with others that treat all people equally as and as having a kind of special dignity, I think that a, the a certain theistic story can tell us that story because can tell us more about that. So. I think that um, Aquinas says something interesting, that God, in fact, can satisfy our desires for every kind of good that we kind of naturally go after. So it could be the good of honor. Maybe I'm really motivated by that just naturally. Maybe I, you know, I want a good reputation. Maybe I'm very motivated by my human friendships. Maybe I'm really motivated um, by beauty or by knowledge anything you can think of that humans kind of by nature want, desire, and want to organize their lives around. These are things that ultimately get best satisfied in the context of a friendship with God. God can give you those things ultimately in the eschaton. So take any human person and you're going to be able to find something that's motivating to them. A kind of carrot on the end of the stick. <laughs> like maybe it's uh, exceeding one's current grasp of the universe, right? It's knowledge 
or having experiences of sublime beauty. Whatever it is that they really care about, you're gonna be able to take that and say, you know how you can best achieve that in relationship with this kind of creator who wants to be in relationship with you. So there's a reason to enter into friendship with God that everybody has, no matter what their psychology is like. Uh, and so it's gonna be a psychologically realistic, the account you give is gonna be really psychologically realistic for any type of human being. And then what it's gonna tell them to do is like, okay, so you probably want friendship with God because you really care about these experiences of beauty, right? Well, God really cares about all these other people. So if you wanna progress in friendship with God, you gotta do things and avoid, you know, you gotta do certain things and avoid doing other things. Um, based on what's gonna harm or help those people. So then we get requirements that look very much like the ordinary requirements of morality. And I think that's sort of nifty. It looks like you froze up, so I'm gonna wait just a sec. You, okay, you're back, you're back. <laughs> I, I heard everything you said, it, I think you just paused. Okay, good. Um, so that's how the solution is supposed to work. It's basically like friendship is getting us part of the way there. But the problem was this human limitations on friendship, that we can't give each other everything that could possibly be motivating uh, to any type of person. And uh, moreover, sometimes our friendships are such that they advantage the people in the friendship and disadvantage people outside of the friendship. But divine human friendship is not like that. Well, much more could be said. And perhaps when this paper comes out, we can devote a whole interview to it. But I, I'm glad we got this brief overview. So now let's shift to a second kind of argument for God's role in moral motivation. And this one has to do with right versus good or the conflict between the right and the good. Um, let's cool. see. I'm going to go. Here we go. Wow. So, yeah. What is this conflict between the right and the good? Yeah, this is a conflict that is pointed out, circling back, uh, to, by Kant, um, Immanuel Kant. And the way that I characterize it in my book, uh, the God and Morality book, is following Kyla Ebel's Duggan's uh, characterization. This argument has um, been interpreted in multiple ways by Kant scholars, but I really like her interpretation. Here's the way that she depicts the problem. Um, let's say that we find ourselves in a world where we're not really sure, you know, the evidence is uh, sort of unclear whether or not there's an afterlife, whether there's a God. Um, we figure out what what's right to do, what sorts of actions are off the table from the perspective of morality. So you might think about something like torturing an innocent person or killing children, um, rape, incest, and so on. And you think it's obvious that these things are morally wrong. Um, we also have a certain, certain intuitive grasp of what sort of world would be good for us to live in. So for instance, it seems like a better world is a world that more people are happy in. Um, it seems like a world where there are a few really happy people and a lot of really unhappy people would be bad. Uh, it seems like a world where people die prematurely. That's a world where things would be sort of bad. And here's the problem. 
Uh, sometimes it looks an awful lot like when you do the right thing, you promote the intuitively worse world uh, or outcome. So, uh, you know, an extreme version, an extreme case of this might be something like the Eye in the Sky movie with Helen Mirren. Uh, they're, they're contemplating whether or not to drop a bomb on a house where they know that there are terrorists building a bomb that's going to kill a lot of people, innocent people. And so the best sort of world is the one where that bomb doesn't get made and doesn't go off. At the same time, it seems like it's obviously wrong to kill children, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, there is a child that set up a little table right outside this terrorist house. And so there's just uh, a really high chance that if they take out this terrorist group, they're gonna kill a child. Um, so this is an extreme illustration of this conflict between doing what's right and doing what's good. Uh, that is that sometimes if we do the right thing, like avoid killing the child in this case, uh, that will lead to less good in the world or maybe like some real bad in the world. Um, so we can't sort of, uh, the world is morally hostile. You know, it's set up in such a way that we can't be sure that if we do the right thing, good will result. Even if like typically good should result from refraining from killing children, right? Sometimes circumstances in our world don't seem like they're set up that way. Uh, and so if you, if you buy that there is this sort of conflict given the way that our world is, uh, it looks like there are gonna be some circumstances in which you have to do something that's morally prohibited or morally bad. Um, and someone might really despair at the thought of this, like, okay, so I'm gonna spend my life trying to become a moral person, doing the right thing, but I might actually make the world worse by doing that. You know, I mean, that's, that's a pretty bleak thought. Uh, and so, so Kant worries that when someone realizes that there's really no guarantee that things are gonna work out better when folks do the right thing, they might despair and not be motivated to do the right thing. Or it might become less rational for them to be concerned about doing the moral thing. All right, so that's the conflict. Now, how exactly does God come into uh, this uh, as a solution? Yeah. So, you know, you might think that without God, you can just be like, hey, someone can hope that by happy coincidence, in the end, uh, people who do the right thing will actually contribute to the world's becoming better in the long run, in the very, very long run. And all these evils that seem like they result from people doing the right thing in adverse circumstances, those will be rectified. Um, so you might, you might try to hope for that. But notice that it would be a total happy coincidence, so I call it, right, if that occurs. Moreover, uh, our empirical evidence tells against that ending, right, that sort of happy ending. I mean, it just doesn't seem like that's how things have worked for thousands and thousands of years. So 
you might worry that uh, on the secular view, even if there is this possibility of a happy coincidence, it's pretty irrational to believe that that's where the world is going. Um, maybe all you need for hope is something like belief that it's possible. Um, but belief that it's possible can give you a reason to hope that that's the outcome, but it might not give you a reason to act as though that's going to be the outcome, right? So to actually do the morally right things. Um, and there are sort of like technical, philosophical uh, worries about acting on the basis of reasons that are really just reasons for attitudes like hoping or intending, but they're not reasons to actually like do the thing, um, which we could go into in Q&A maybe. Uh, so so th that's sort of the worry for the secular theorist, um, but the theist who believes in a God of providence and a God who preserves people into an afterlife has a sort of unique response. And the response, you know, according to Kant is that God is a moral orderer. Uh, God is going to bring about by providence that all of our right actions will contribute to uh, harmony and justice in the afterlife being achieved. Uh, and you don't need to think that harmony and justice are typically the outcomes of doing the right thing on earth to think that harmony and justice are likeliest are the likeliest outcomes uh, in the afterlife if people do what God says, let's say, or act morally. Um, and so there's not the same sort of threat of irrationality in hoping for that for the theist that there is for the secular theorist. All right. Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to go ahead and move to the uh, the third argument. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that's great. Okay, so this third argument, my understanding is it's developed by John Hare, mm -hmm. and it's called the argument from Providence. So what is this argument? Yeah. So this is, uh, Hare is another person who's doing sort of Kant scholarship and trying to figure out what, Kant has a bunch of uh, things that he says that have been taken to be moral arguments for, for faith in God, um, for positing a, the existence uh, of God and a certain kind of God. Um, so this argument comes out of a different interpretation of some of the same texts that Ebel's Duggan looks at. Uh, and here, the idea is something like our individual motivation to do what's right uh, is sort of tempered by our desire for reward and pleasure. So imagine that I look at the world and it's not that I see that, you know, the world might become worse off when I do the right thing systematically, but it's rather that I look at my own life and I see that my needs might not be met. Um, the things that I most basically desire might be things I never achieve if I live my life being a morally good person or doing the morally right thing. Um, and so I might be profoundly unhappy if I'm a morally good person. And 
that's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, that could lead someone to be really unmotivated to be moral. If they think, well, I look around me and I look at, you know, someone like Mother Teresa and it looks like from her journals, she really struggled and maybe she wasn't happy. And I don't want to live my short life on earth unhappy. So maybe I don't want to be moral because like, look, I'm a human. I've got needs. I've got desires, inclinations. I want to satisfy those things. Um, so what we need, according to Kant on Hare's interpretation, is to believe that there is a God who has ordered the universe in such a way that in the afterlife, people who do the right thing get their rewards. Um, and those who achieve the sort of moral perfection uh, of their self. So someone who acts from a motive of duty to the moral law um, will eventually reap their reward in heaven. Their needs will be satisfied. Their desire, their deepest desires will be satisfied. And so they can hope for that for themselves. And that helps make their motivation to be moral more rational than it otherwise would be. Okay. So this seems pretty related to, I mean, all of them are, are, are related, but this one seems very close to that last one we looked at because yes. you're, you're depending on a providential uh, version of God. Yeah, that's right. So it's gotta be that in, in the, the last one we looked at, especially um, it's really important to think that God is going to achieve harmony and justice through our own actions, through human actions, so that we're contributing to that development in moral order in the afterlife by what we do on earth. Uh, and that helps us not despair about doing the right thing on earth when it seems like sometimes doing the right thing, uh, you know, not lying to someone and uh, then really hurting the relationship. Um, seems like a bad outcome. Uh, so the, the second argument that we just looked at is really more about like what could psychologically sustain us um, doing the right thing, not just like uh, why would it be coherent and rational to adopt a lifestyle where you're trying to be moral. All right. So I was going to ask you about this argument as well. Will Will every type of theism work with this argument from Providence? Yeah, good question. So I think that the kind of theism you need um, has got to be one where God grants a lot of freedom of choice to human beings and uh, where God is neither going to just throw up God's hands and be like, you know what, your world will end up the way you choose <laughs> um, for it to end up. And once I grant you freedom, there's really nothing I can do to keep evil, evil out of it. Um, so some, some theodicies uh, and defend like the free will defense sort of assume that once God grants us a certain kind of freedom, which is quite valuable for humans, then uh, evils will creep into the world and there's really nothing God can do about that. Uh, given the way that God set up the world, that's just going to be like the consequence 
of our having freedom. Um, but here you've got to be pretty sure that the kind of freedom God gives us is compatible with God rectifying in the afterlife or in the end um, all the wrongs <laughs> that have been done by humans on the basis of freedom. So not every theistic view, not even every Christian version of theism is going to paint that picture of God's providence. Um, and then for the earlier argument, uh, the Eagles Duggan version, you've really got to think that God gives us free choice, but also um, wants to invite us into this process of bringing about justice and harmony in the end. Uh, so that it's not just sort of like predetermined, right? Because if you thought, oh, well, God's going to, God's the moral orderer. Uh, God's going to make everything right in the end. You might yourself sort of lose, lose your own um, reasons for participating in that because you're so sure that no matter what happens, God is going to bring about harmony and justice, including no matter what you do, whether you're a moral person or not. So why not just sit back and enjoy your life? <laughs> All right. So how about um, we, we've got about 14 minutes. So we'll very quickly go through the argument from grace, the final argument, and then we'll do Q and a. So what is the argument from grace? Okay, cool. Um, so this one is like the other Kantian arguments in that it assumes uh conception of God that's pretty familiar to the Christian tradition. Um, and in this argument, the idea is similar to the starting point of the previous argument from Hare, um, that we naturally sort of prioritize our own inclinations or desires or needs, our own happiness, as Kant calls it, over duty and obligation. Um, that's just the sort of creature we are. Um, but look, in order to be morally good, we've got to do the opposite. We've got to flip those priorities. We've got to care more about doing the right thing, about doing our duty or fulfilling our obligations than about our own inclinations and desires, our own subjective happiness. Um, so that's pretty unnatural. And in fact, you might worry impossible for creatures like us. So from a theoretical perspective, you might think humans, human creatures like us just have no business trying to be moral. <laughs> it's kind of contrary to nature. Uh, it's unnatural for us to try to always do our duty instead of just doing what we most desire or what's going to satisfy our needs. Um, so then the demands of morality look sort of incoherent. Like why, you know, you wouldn't impose a law on people that said like, uh, you know, whenever the bell sounds, you need to jump 10 feet in the air. Why? Because we can't do it. We're not that sort of species. <laughs> uh, and so you might think, well, if morality is sort of a system that imposes these duties on us to do things that are sometimes quite contrary to our basic desires, uh, then isn't morality as absurd a uh, sort of set of demands as a demand like 
jump 10 feet in the air every time the bell rings. Um, it doesn't really make sense to try to organize your life around that sort of system. It's just not built for creatures like us. Okay, so that's the problem. And according to Pear, the Kantian solution to this is to appeal to a particular kind of God, the kind of God that uh, we learn about in natural theology um, or in Revelation, uh, the kind of God who helps us bridge this moral gap, a gap between the sorts of creatures we are and the sorts of lives we should be living, according to morality. Uh, and God's grace alone can do that. So God can kind of intervene in human life and help us to do things that are beyond our natural capacities uh, in order to be moral. And then the demands of morality are, are not in fact incoherent. Um, it may look initially like being moral requires being heroic or saintly or something, but then we see all these people that in fact live saintly lives or heroic or do heroic things. And we think it must be possible. How is it possible? And we posit a God who gives individuals grace to sort of invert their own natural inclinations and, and needs and desires and their desire to do what's right. All right. So we looked at four arguments that God plays this significant role in moral motivation. And I think before we go to Q and a, which by the way, Go ahead and type your questions in the live chat. Just put the word question at the beginning. We've already got some good ones. I think you you want to say it's not that secular responses are just left with with, with nothing, basically. They, they, they aren't good responses. It's not that you want to say that. It's I think you just want to say, at least with respect to the divine friendship theory, that that one does at least as well if not better than those secular responses. Right. And you could think with the divine, so going back to the, the criteria for giving a satisfying answer um, to the question, why be moral? You know, secular theorists can give us really convincing arguments that we shouldn't care about how psychologically realistic the answer is, for instance. Um, or they might give us an an argument that uh, it's okay if our conception of morality has to change once we become kind of more mature, rational thinkers. Maybe we find out that the moral rules we grew up with are not the right ones. So they, you know, they have lots of resources to respond to the sort of dilemma. Uh, what I think is cool and unique about something like the divine friendship theory is that it leaves intact uh, the premises of the of the dilemmatic argument um, and the criteria for being a satisfying answer. It kind of accepts that, it takes it on board. And I think for other theories of moral motivation, you might have to go in the back door by saying, oh, that thing that looked like it was a criterion for being a satisfying answer, it's really not, and here's why. Um, so I think it's like less, you know, those theories, responses to the why be moral question are just going to be less commonsensical, less accessible to most people, um, make less sense. So I really like that the divine friendship theory sort of holds intact a lot of our 
folk intuitions or common sense judgments. All right. Well, let's go ahead and begin uh, Q&A. So we had a, a question early on from Justin Mooney and Akil. Let me go back. Justin Mooney asked, does the motivation horn of Pritchard's dilemma assume that moral motivation, inter moral motivational internalism is false? Yeah, good. For the non-philosophers in the audience, let me say just one thing about uh, motivational internalism. So uh, the way we like to think about it in um, moral theory, uh, to make a judgment like, it's wrong to lie, uh, may just carry along with it some sort of psychological motivation to not lie or to make the judgment, um, I ought to sacrifice, be willing to sacrifice my life for my children, is just to be a little bit moved, at least, <laughs> to sacrifice my life for my children if it comes down to that. Um, that is, we can't make these judgments or sincerely state these claims, these moral claims, without being somewhat moved uh, by them. Here's a problem some people have with motivational internalism. Uh, it looks like there are people who make statements that seem true about morality all the time and live their lives in ways that are extremely contrary to those statements. Uh, the kind of wildest examples would be the psychopath who can agree with you about the wrongness of killing, have a whole conversation with you about it, but then they live their life like a Ted Bundy. <laughs> and you think they don't seem at all motivated by the judgments that they're able to make or uh, the statements that they're pretty proficient with. So is it true that to judge something to be wrong is partly to be moved to not do it? Maybe not for everyone. Maybe there are certain people whose psychologies are so. Oh, you've frozen up again. Let's wait. Like a little. Am I okay? Yes, you said maybe some people's psychology is, and then you froze. Oh, okay, is um, fragmented. So they can like believe with all their heart and judge wholeheartedly that it's really bad to torture innocent people. But they go to work every day in this counterterrorism unit and they feel the pressures of their, um, their boss saying what they have to do for um, country and they happily torture people uh, people that may be totally innocent, you know, in Guantanamo or something. So um, for information. And so they seem not at all moved by this judgment that they hold about morality. Okay, so how does this relate to the horn of Pritchard's dilemma? That, by the way, this, this view that your judgment can come totally apart from your psychological motivation is externalism. And internalism is the view that when you make a judgment, you're at least somewhat motivated by that judgment. Um, so remember that Pritchard says, uh, 
answers of one form are going to be psychologically realistic, but collapse the moral into the prudential. And the other horn is that answers that preserve um, a recognizable conception of what morality requires will lack this psychologically realistic force. So you might think if motivational internalism is true and the person you're talking to at least retains a judgment that her ordinary conception of morality, the one she was brought up with is correct, then she's gonna be likely to say things like, it would be wrong to lie to my professor about why I didn't show up for my exam. Um, I'm probably obligated to give to charity if I make enough money and so on and so forth. Well, won't they thereby be motivated to do those moral things or to avoid the immoral things? If you're a motivational internalist, it seems like you can say that. Um, and in fact, I think this is related to where Pritchard ends up going in the paper. Um, does modern moral philosophy rest on a mistake? But if you don't have this sort of internalist view and a kind of moral intuitionism, um, in the background, I think you can't give that sort of an answer. And it's a pretty psychologically uh, robust assumption to make and not one that I think we have a lot of good empirical data for, <laughs> especially when we start studying like sociopaths and psychopaths who seem super proficient with moral language and able to make moral judgments, but have like no um, affective responses that we would see as aligned with those. All right, it's 8.58, so probably only one more question. I'm sorry, we, we, we said that we would cut off at nine. So Andrew Moon asked, uh, hi, Anne, good stuff. On your model, is the ultimate motivator supposed to be divine friendship itself or some property of that friendship, honor, knowledge, happiness, etc.? Good. Um this is such a great question, which allows me to say a little bit more about the model, uh, which is that divine friendship is something that like in human friendship, uh, you can grow in. So what we need, I think I said something like honor, knowledge, happiness, experiences of beauty are like carrots. <laughs> um, but they can't be the ultimate, that can't be all that's there, right? <laughs> uh, because then it looks like what you're motivated to do is just to pursue those things. You froze up one last time. Um, so that could be problematic if, if the theory just sort of ended with uh, being motivated by the property that the friendship is going to allow your life to instantiate or something. Um, so instead, it's got to be something like it's psychologically realistic to expect every person to have a reason to enter into divine friendship, to start it, right? To want to start. Um, but that increasingly, as you grow in this friendship, uh, you know, you basically invite God in. And I think this is why you need a pretty specific conception of God. I think you need a God that has something like the Holy Spirit <laughs> uh, that can work in people that are open to God um, and kind of transform them. So once I kind of let God in, because I really want a good reputation or knowledge or experiences of beauty. And I recognize God is the best way for me to achieve that, um, that good. 
then God can sort of work on me to understand why that's not all there is to life. Actually, friendship with God, which involves the sort of uh, union with God and with all those God has created, is more worthwhile than just reputation or whatnot. So hopefully it moves you from being the sort of person who's motivated exclusively by honor or knowledge or whatever, um, to being motivated by like all these goods God has created uh, and that other people have those goods too. But I think that's probably like a process of growing in friendship with God. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Jordan. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey. I really enjoy every time you come on. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed this. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. That concludes my interview with Dr. Jeffrey. If you're interested in checking out her book, God and Morality, I've left the link in the notes. Also, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, leave a review and consider becoming one of my patrons. The link to become a patron is in the notes as well. As always, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.